Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 98, The Second Commandment. Part 2 of our Ten Commandments series, recorded Thursday, November 3rd of 2016, with your hosts, Grant and Peter. Welcome to Saving the Game, I'm Grant. And I'm Peter. Peter, how are you? Um, I have been hooked badly by Stardew Valley, and now I know what you were talking about a couple months ago. You're welcome. Also, my wife watched me playing it for about a day or two, and then had to buy her own copy. You're also welcome. <laughs> and Concerned Ape is welcome. Yes. Uh, for those who don't know, that's the guy who single-handedly made Stardew Valley. He did all the music, all the art, all the writing, all the game code. It's fairly impressive. Okay, so just as a quick aside on this one, I have to admit that at the beginning when um, you guys first started talking about this, I was like, wow, really? That doesn't necessarily sound like anything that I would get all that into. And then I put an hour into the game, and then I looked up and it was night. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, about that hour. Yeah. Well, I, I put an hour into it. I looked a few things up on the wiki. I went back to the game, and then it was night is probably the more accurate way of describing it but mm -hmm. nope that's that's stardew valley in a nutshell so i'm glad you're joining in and i'm really glad that they're hoping to have multiplayer out for 1.2 yeah that would be cool that would be amazing because i've gotten all the way to the bottom of the mines now and <laughs> oh very good very yeah good. it starts getting interesting after that you know because it wasn't already yeah i was gonna say it starts getting interesting long before that as well but okay so enough about stardew valley because we got a lot of other stuff to cover here we so... do and you thought this was going to be a short episode <laughs> I still kind of do, but I'm I'm more than willing to be proven wrong. Okay, so I have some cool news. It's right. gaming related, and it's not video game related. I ran inspectors for my, I guess you could call it my home group last night. You know, college friends, Birthright, Mage, a lot of the other games I've talked about on the show. Hey, I remember you being nervous. I was nervous, and we actually had about an hour's discussion afterwards. I went to bed really late, much later than I should have. But we talked for about an hour about inspectors and about some other things we want to do. And I pinned down why I'm so nervous about running inspectors. Why is that? It's different from all the other kinds of games that I have run. For those who don't know, inspectors is basically a Ghostbusters knockoff, except you're not just busting ghosts. You're kind of engaged in paranormal pest control. The gimmick of the game is that it encourages a reality TV show feel, up to and including the use of a confessional, where a character goes into the confessional booth, you know, where they cut away on a reality TV show to just have one person talking in front of a green screen. Right. They're talking directly to the camera, and as such, to the audience. And so in this case, it's characters narrating something that's going to happen or talking about what's going on in their head and reacting directly to the players at the table. We had a wonderful moment. There's this message written in blood that has soaked through from beneath the plaster in this haunted house, right? Right. And so one of the characters who's this very, very staid accountant kind of character who just occasionally gets thrown out into the field when they're shorthanded. He's out there looking at it because he's decoding this. It's, oh, it's it's this language. Mm, yeah, okay, I think somebody put something under the plaster when the house was remodeled, etc., etc. And then we cut away to someone else. The way I'm doing it is just, you kind of raise your hand. Okay, confessional? Yep, go ahead. You know, it was 
it was great that found this blood, it was really a whole lot funnier when all the rest of the blood came through the wall. <laughs> and then player gets to describe his reaction to all this blood pouring out onto him that the other player had brought into the game through the confessional. That's basically the gimmick of So it sounds like your players started using this as ways of setting the other players up to do something fun as opposed to doing all the dysfunctional stuff that people worry about, like taking shots at each other or that sort of thing? Oh, no. The dysfunction is part of it. But that's part of the fun of this group because it created an interesting complication. Uh, and it gave me an excuse to do stress checks. Yeah, but if they're if they're doing stuff to, like, actively make things more awesome, that's not dysfunction. No, no. Saying, hey, something gross happened to this other character, that you know, that's totally fine. Now, it's not, man, it was great when this ghost killed Bob. Right. That's dysfunctional, and that obviously doesn't happen, because it turns out I have a really good group of players. But what we were talking about, just to get back to our original topic here, what I was talking with everyone about, and the guy who normally GMs in this group, he ran the mage game that I've raved about for years, fantastic guy, amazing GM. He pointed out that GMing inspectors is vastly different than GMing most other games. Because let's say it's D&D, I come up as a GM with a plot, and by and large, you guys adhere to it. Yeah. I'm laying out setting information. I have to do a lot of work up front, but then I'm just sort of driving you through your reactions to the world. Now, how you interact with the world is entirely up to you if I'm doing my job well. There's no railroad, but it's, all right, so here's what's going on this week. I'm just going to adjudicate the world around you, and I don't have to come up with a whole lot more on the fly. Right. With inspectors, I came up with the barest outline of a plot. I mean, the barest outline. And just enough to kind of kick things into gear when they meet the client for the first time, okay? Right. But then after that, I'm reacting to dice rolls because how much is revealed is determined by dice. Three quarters of the time, I don't say what's revealed. The players do. And then I have to incorporate that into the narration. So it's much more improv-heavy and much lighter on prep. Hmm. So we had a really good conversation about this, and it was really interesting. And for the record, the game went exceptionally well. We had a great time. Only five of the seven players could make it. The other one, thankfully, is working with equipment that deals heavily with space-time and phasing. He's the mad scientist of the company. So it may very well be that he's simply not in this reality at the moment. He'll phase back in when his player character is due to show up and when the player can actually join us. <laughs> That's a convenient way of handling the player absence problem. Isn't it? <laughs> it kind of works out. We did a good job improving back and forth, involving each other, getting a feel for these new characters. You know how it is. Like, the first session is always a little awkward. Yeah. Yeah, I do know how that is. <laughs> we got over that hump. Very, very quickly, there's an ongoing gag. Like, from the first ten minutes of gameplay, we had an ongoing gag. Everybody steals the accountant's yogurt out of the fridge and eats it for lunch. Everybody. <laughs> that's just, that's what you do at the company. So, that awkwardness was very quickly overcome, and everybody got into it, and we had a lot of fun. You know, speaking of that early campaign awkwardness, I think getting over that quickly was one of the things that got our D&D um, campaign off to such a good start. So... There's definitely something to be said for dispensing with that as quickly as possible. Sure. And I don't even mean the, you know, oh, we all meet in a tavern and we don't know each other awkwardness. I just mean we emailed out characters to everyone ahead of time, sent out pictures, you know, little backstory bits, very funny little write-ups. 
it was all great, right? We all kind of knew these characters ahead of time. But actually having them at the table is very different. Yeah. So getting used to each other, especially because a couple of people took the opportunity to play characters very much against type and very much for type, where they had been playing against type for a while. It took a little time to get used to, and we got over that really fast. So that was really fun. Uh, it looks like, just for the record, this is going to turn into kind of our B game during the downtime when Pugmire isn't going. Okay. It's going to be GM runs Pugmire for a couple of weeks. He come, you know does a little scenario that we go through, and then I run Inspectors, or we pick some other little indie game to play during those down weeks. Uh, we went over several options, like Don't Rest Your Head, maybe even Microscope, some sort of Apocalypse World game. I don't care which one, I just want to try the system. Talked about Bubblegum Shoe. My wife kind of wants to run a World of Darkness Innocence game, which doesn't qualify as indie, but I'm just happy to have her GMing. Well, and it's just a, it's a smaller project. Yeah. She's ready to GM. She's been playing for so long that I think it's probably good for her development yeah. as a role player to get her feet wet in that way. I think so too, but because she has taken on the majority of the childcare burden, she just hasn't had time to think about stuff like that lately. And by lately, I mean like five years. Yeah, that's completely understandable. Yeah. So I know she wants to, and I really hope that happens. All right. We've spent a lot of time talking about this particular game and it's good. We like talking about games on a gaming show, but we do have some other business to get to. And then we have a main topic talking about the second commandment. Yeah. We should move And of course, on. we have a Patreon question in the middle of that, so... Yeah, imagine. Okay, so a couple of quick notes. First, we are doing a holiday charity drive this year, but due to some other time constraints, we are not going to be doing it for the 60 days we have done in the past. We're just going to do it for 30 days. Basically, December 1st to December 31st. Now, for those who don't know, every year we try and do a charity fundraiser for some charity. Typically, it has been the Bodana Group which uses role-playing games as a form of therapy, cognitive therapy, for children who are victims of sexual abuse or are themselves sexual abusers. We really like them. We had Jack Birkenstock, who's their executive director, on way back in episode 25. I encourage you to go look that up on our website, stgcast.org. Yep. Easily found. It's, I think, still in our uh, most popular episodes feed. We typically have supported them in the past. I think we're going to do that again this year. But... Just because of some logistical issues, the time frame is going to be a little compressed. And honestly, we don't have such a high rate of donations. We are still a small podcast, let's be honest. Yeah, we're a niche of a niche, that's to be expected. Yeah, I don't know that a 60-day charity drive, when we are not trying to do the, the great RPG podcast charity competition like we tried to do for a couple of years, I don't know that 30 days versus 60 days will make a big difference. We will have that ready to go December 1st. I am committing to that right here, right now, and for good reason, to be perfectly honest. Speaking of things that uh, involve the Bodana Group, yeah, <laughs> we've also committed to doing a recording of the next Game to Grow episode, and as of this recording, that will be 10 days from now. As of when this episode releases, uh, I always have trouble with this. Is it going to be right after or right before this comes out? It will be out the weekend before this episode drops. Okay, so... Well, I say out. We will be recording it, and it will have gone live, so we will be able to link to the Google Hangouts on air recording of it. A nicer YouTube video will probably be forthcoming. Yep. So, keep that in mind. But we're going to have some interesting guests on. We're talking about spirituality in gaming, 
And unlike this show, we're going to be talking to people from several different faiths. And we are just going to be moderating. Other panelists will be contributing perspectives. So it's going to be pretty interesting. It's very different. If you're not familiar with Game to Grow, check it out. I'll make sure to link that in the show notes. There's a lot of really interesting content coming out of that. Yep. One other thing I want to reiterate. Last episode, we put out a call for stories of othering and harassment in the gaming industry and hobby. I'm not going to go into quite as much detail this episode, but I do want to reiterate that call. We are looking for stories from you. Maybe not necessarily something that happened to you, but something that you actually witnessed. Only because hearsay stories of, oh, hey, I found this story on the internet, or I heard about it from this one guy. The telephone game and growing in the telling are real problems. They are. And I'm sure, I don't think anybody here is going to willfully exaggerate. Our listeners generally are awesome people. But it's honestly just more effective, and it's not like we have a dearth of these stories. We don't have to go digging around for third-hand information. There are too many first-hand immediate accounts. Which is why we're talking about doing an episode in the first place. Yeah. Email those to us. You can message them to us on Facebook. We have a contact page on our website, sdgcast.org. Anything like that. And, you know, please, if you want to say, hey, I want this to be anonymous, put that in there. We will make certain to respect that. Yeah, the the other thing, too, is along those same lines, if for some reason you feel safer or more comfortable just talking to one of us directly, feel free to message something straight at one of us on social media and we will handle it appropriately. I will even let you pick which of us you want to talk to. I normally handle most of the social media stuff, but I will be happy to say, hey, Peter, somebody here wants to talk to you instead of me, and I'm totally down with that. Yeah, I don't see that as a terribly likely consideration, but it's out there if it's needed. However, However you want to feel comfortable contacting us with this information, you do that. Just as a heads up, I'm going to make a post about this on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash savingthegame. I am thinking of reworking our Patreon rewards to make them more inclusive and kind of drop the tiering on some of the rewards that we have out there just to involve people a little more and reward people for backing us at any level. I do want to kind of maintain the current tiers so that I will be coming up with more things to give people who are pledging at current amounts. But I want to kind of talk that over with other people, uh, specifically current Patreon backers. So look for a post on our Patreon page related to that where people can comment and respond. I'm not going to go into that on air just because it would take too long and it's not a good format for getting feedback. And it's by no means finalized yet, so there's really nothing to announce. Right. But I just want to let you know I'm looking at doing that. Honestly, we've kind of gone over the same couple of Patreon backer questions over and over. And some of that is because people don't always get a question to us in a timely manner, and that's fine. But we are still a small podcast, as I said before, and I want to get a wider variety of questions. Because honestly, going to the same couple of people every week and saying, all right, we need a question, that is a burden on those patrons. And the whole point of Patreon is not to burden those Patreon yeah, those Patreon backers. Giving them like lower level hosting responsibilities in some ways, as opposed to just something fun they can do as a bonus. That's not the reward for support. <laughs> that yeah. It's I, like, I, I want here, it have an obligation. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> awkward. So I want to spread that out a little bit and make it something special when we do roll and come up with you instead of Oh, he answered my question. That's great. Now I have to come up with another one. Three episodes after the first one. Okay. 
All right, that's a lot of podcast business. Let's get to said Patreon question. If you back us uh, currently at the $5 or more level, but like I said, it might be changing, you get to ask us a question, and we put it on a table and roll on it. And if we come up with yours, we answer it, and then you get to replace it. So, I'm going to roll that die. And that comes from uh, a backer who prefers to remain anonymous. How did you get into GMing, and do you have advice for making the transition from player to GM? Peter, I'm going to let you go first on this, because this is actually something we talked about in the conversation I talked about with that home group last night. All right. So I got into role-playing relatively late in life. Um, I had some uh, some books back in high school that I read through and stuff, but I never really actually got a chance to do it until I was in, I want to say, my early 20s. And I had done a, a fairly lengthy campaign with a friend of mine from back in those days who actually listens to the podcast. So you know who you are. Hello. Yep. Uh, and I'd been in a campaign of his for quite some time, and he ran a very kind of dark and gritty, hard scrabble, candle in the darkness, is how he described it, kind of campaign. And I'd been wanting to do something a little bit more high fantasy, actiony, cinematic. I think is probably the word I'm looking for here, in a completely different tone for a while. And once I kind of got out of that gaming group and was looking at starting one of my own. I had all of these ideas kind of percolating in my head, and I was like, well, the only way that I'm really going to get what I want is to run it myself. So I assembled some co-workers and uh, my wife, and we had a pretty successful campaign that ran for about a year and a half or so and actually wrapped when the story closed. I had to accelerate the timetable a little bit because one of my players was moving away. But um, yeah, that was how I got into GMing. Yes, okay. I, I saw something that you know I played in for a while and I wanted to do something different. And the only way I knew I could make that happen was to give it a try myself. So for me, it was a little bit of the classic, I've been playing for a while. I feel like it's my turn. Okay. We'd been playing for quite some time. And I kind of said one day, you know what? I want to try it. I didn't have any specific impetus, but I was like, I want to try GMing because I've been gaming for long enough. I feel like I should try it. Not necessarily the most rational or even most responsible way to get into GMing, but that was the sensation I had. It's very Gygaxian, right? Well, you've been gaming for a while. Clearly, it's your time to GM. Yeah. And then you should write your own game and then run your own convention and, you know, set up your own company. <laughs> because that follows for everybody in the hobby. Everybody should do exactly what I did. I don't understand why anybody wouldn't. So that's kind of how I did it. Like you, there was a certain element of, but I want to do this and no one else is. For me, it was Eberron. I still wanted to run D&D because I was familiar with it, but I really liked Eberron at the time. And so first game was a truly terrible Eberron one-shot for all sorts of reasons. And my second game, as it happens, was a truly terrible Eberron campaign. This is not a reflection on Eberron as a setting. It is a reflection on early Grant's GMing abilities. Everybody goes through some stumbles when they're getting started. Yeah. Now, as for advice on making the transition from player to GM, this is one of the things we talked about when we were talking about differences in gaming and characters, and we were kind of critiquing characters in some ways and how characters were behaving. Because uh, one of the players, who usually is a GM, was saying that he was not happy with his character and he wasn't quite sure why. This was the Pugmire character. He wasn't getting what he wanted out of that character. This character was supposed to be the guy in charge, but he wasn't making decisions. Okay. He was literally the guy who had hired all the other characters. He was the guy paying for everything. He was the man in charge. But he just sat back and let the other characters kind of take the lead, and he was just a bit of a caricature. The transition from GM to player, and I think conversely from player to GM, 
is one of control. Player characters are protagonists. The GM's characters are the setting in which those characters... Do their protagonizing. Yeah, yeah, they take the actions that protagonists take. They change the world that the GM has created. So the GM's job is to set things up and let the players play off them. Now, that may be very interactive. The GM is, may well be heavily involved. But the GM's job is not to progress the plot. The GM's job is to set things up so that the players can progress the plot through their player characters. When you are transitioning from player to GM, you have to understand that although you are taking on creative control for the story, or at least the setting, you are giving up narrative control of the direction that story goes in. This is where a lot of first-time GMs or GMs who do not get a lot of good feedback, this is where they fall into that railroading trap. Right. They are trying to have creative control, and they are trying to direct the plot, where they need to let go of the plot. Right, because they're used to being a player and being able to steer that around. So mm -hmm. it's it's hard to let go of that if that's what you're used to. It is, and also need to pick up the creative side. So that's my advice, is be aware that you are giving up the plot and instead getting to world build and create little characters for all of your players and create maps and create dungeons and create cool art that illustrates things. Whatever it is, you're doing that and you are giving up the opportunity to tell the other people at the table where the plot is going. Yeah, I don't really think I have any further advice than that. Um, Take copious notes. Yeah, I, or get somebody else to do it for you, I suppose. I Yeah. Okay, so confession time. I am terrible about taking notes as a GM, or as a player, really, but that's less of a critical thing. Oh, me too. Have you noticed I start every session with, so guys, tell me what happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to do that quite a bit of that, too. I, um... One of the things that I did take from that dark and gritty formative campaign that I was in that made me have a hankering to do something that was a little bit in contrast with that mm -hmm. is that particular, G you know, I might as well say his name, Devin. Um, Devin would appoint uh, a scribe at the beginning of the, the campaign. It, was, it wasn't the sort of thing that you couldn't get out of if you really didn't want to, but he always wanted somebody to sit there and take notes. Hmm. And I actually wound up doing that for that game that I was in for quite a while, and it was really handy having that there for both him and for us as players. It was, it was a very useful resource. I, I think one of the reasons why, and um, I would have to ask him directly, but he did that was to free up a little more brain capacity for some of the creative on-the-fly stuff that GMs do. It seemed to work that way for me, at least when I was running that first game. So. Okay. Having having a player as the note taker is not necessarily the worst thing in the world because they have less that they have to keep track of as things go along. Plus, the other thing that's interesting about that is you will get notes from a player's perspective, which right. gives you an idea of what they think is important in the game. Yep. And that helps so much. Yeah. Okay. So that's a good question. Thank you for asking, Mr. Anonymous. Yep. We appreciate it. Okay. Let's actually get to our scripture and our topic because we've been going for a while and we haven't even gotten there yet. Shall we? Yep. Uh, so this is Exodus 24 through 6. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And our next is Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. 
And this next one is Hosea 3.1. The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. And finally, we have Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 to 21. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, still did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So we are talking about the second commandment tonight. Now the tricky part here is that there is some disagreement about what the second commandment actually is. Now I know yeah. a lot of people are going to think, really? I learned them in Sunday school. What? How can you disagree what they are? Well, it turns out, and I did not know this until I started researching, that there are about eight different breakdowns of this stretch of Exodus 20 that we refer to as the Ten Commandments, starting with, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, ending with, Ye shall erect these stones which I command thee upon Mount Gerizim, which is only found in uh, the Samaritan Pentateuch. Most translations of the Bible end with, Thou shalt not covet neighbor's servants, animals, or anything else. The Septuagint, which is generally followed by Orthodox Christians, keeps the first commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and the second commandment, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, separate. So does Philo in his translation, and so do Reformed Christians, which are basically anybody who follows Calvin, and Calvin himself followed the Septuagint. Others combine these two into one commandment and say that that's the first commandment. Typically the Catholic Church and Augustine, which the Catholic Church follows, and the Samaritan Pentateuch, as I said, uh, which is its own thing, that keeps those in one. Interestingly, the Jewish Talmud, I am the Lord thy God, which has brought thee out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, that is the first commandment. The second commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make unto thee any graven image. Those are all combined into one second commandment. This weird breakdown kind of continues throughout all of these, and we're not going to cover every episode in this series. Take a look at the uh, Wikipedia Ten Commandments. Yeah, scroll down to the multicolored table down towards the middle of the article and just kind of take in the amount of difference of opinion there is about this. Right. It's really interesting. And I, I wanted to bring this up in part just to educate people but also because we have a couple of different Christian traditions that listen to this show. And I wanted to point out that just because we are following the Reformed breakdown of the Ten Commandments does not mean that... We consider the others to be invalid or non-existent. Yeah. They're there. We're just using this one for the convenience of our episode structure, basically. Yeah. It's all the same scripture. It's just a matter of how we decide what is tenth or ninth or fifth or sixth. So if you listen to us and kind of go, wait a minute, why are they talking about this as the second commandment? That's why. Yeah. And regardless of how you organize this list, it's all mandatory anyway. So, <laughs> well, yeah. So let's talk about this second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is a commandment just like the first commandment we talked about, which is both an explicit command to the people of God and a commandment that articulates something about the nature of God. 
And I want to kind of talk about that first. Obviously, God does not want his people worshiping something that is not him. God wants his people to be loyal to him, to worship him and him alone, to give him their faith. The phrase that God uses there, the the jealous God, is not jealous in terms of covetous, but actually in terms of a husband and wife. God as the husband, jealous of his wife, meaning that he does not want anyone else to have her. He is jealous of Israel. He will keep Israel for himself. Another um, kind of useful synonym here would be the term possessive. Yeah, that has slightly negative connotations in English. So does jealous, unfortunately. It does. But yes, both of those are, are accurate words for this. Israel is God's. God has laid claim to them, and part of that claim is the covenant that he has established. The other interesting thing about this statement that God makes is that God cannot be represented by a single thing. This goes back to God's identifying himself as, I am who I am. I am existence itself. That's not something that you can capture within an earthly icon, within a simple statue or painting or representation. God is too large and too interesting for that. Yeah, it's it's hard to, um, okay, it's, it's flat out impossible to picture how you would represent a being that is so powerful that he is responsible for the genesis and governance of the entire universe. And that impossibility gets more impossible with every revelation as to just how big the universe is. Oh, yeah. An interesting side note here, there have been times where some believe that even crosses constituted a violation of this commandment. Sure. I I believe some early Protestant Reformation churches did not have them. There's still an ongoing debate between Orthodox, uh, Catholic, and Protestant faiths about icons and crucifixes as opposed to the bare cross. This debate has not stopped. Yeah. The other interesting thing is the word used in Exodus 24, idol. The, the Hebrew word is pesel. Uh, it means something carved or hewn. There are other words that scripture uses elsewhere that translate as things like non-god, or things of naught, or carcasses, or powerless ones. All these very poetic descriptions of idols as opposed to something that is god. <laughs> poetic and derogatory. But often they're very derogatory. In at least one case, pellets of dung is used <laughs> to refer to idols. Again, it gets to this idea that God simply cannot be contained within that. This is dead. God is a living person rather than an object that man has made. Now, you'll note, too, there's a specific command in this commandment to make no representation of an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Not only does this forbid idolatry, but it specifically forbids deification of astrological and astronomical features, or of beasts and birds, or things in the ocean. It forbids animistic worship of geographical and natural features. It kind of categorically forbids animism in any form, really. Certainly, certainly. God is too big and too unique for that. There are a lot of stars, and it's easy to say, well, this star is one god, this star is another god, this star is a third god. Uh, We see that in Greek and Egyptian ancient mythology, that sort of thing. Even sun worshippers would fill the rest of the skies with all these other deities. And God is saying, I am singular, and there is nothing like me. 
not only can I not be represented by this, but there is no place for me to be represented by anything that has equal. I cannot fit into any system where you can put anything else. I am God. This is also a very specific commandment about worship of physical objects. Icons, statues, paintings, carvings. The ancient Israelites, <laughs> they were very good at violating this commandment. Yeah, in fact, it bears mentioning that right before this commandment got delivered to them, they violated it. Sure. There was that whole uncomfortable incident with the golden calf, and then Moses came down the mountain and smashed the original tablets, and yeah, it was awkward. Yes, it was. Uh, the Bible specifically mentions certain types of idols, Asherah poles, shrines to Baals, all sorts of easily worshipped, easily made gods. Many of these gods were carried around with tribes. The god literally traveled with you. We see that echoed somewhat in Israel. There is a home for God in the tabernacle, but God comes and goes as he pleases. It's pointing to the idea that Israel is the first to understand the, the real awesomeness of God. <laughs> the, the scale, the, the otherness, the beyondness. It's, it's kind of fascinating. Also, once again, in this commandment, God is indicating an exclusive relationship with the Israelites and through them the world. The first verse of the second commandment can be rendered, there shall not be to you the gods of others. Right. So let's talk about gaming applications of this. Yeah, I mean, we are still a gaming podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because you kind of look at it and think, well, ultimately this is a commandment that is entirely about God. But it does tie back, interestingly, into certain aspects of our last episode on religious villains. Monsters worshipping horrible things. Or people who worship something that isn't God. The, kind of the broader concept here is that you can tell at least something about a religion be, by how they represent or refrain from representing their object of worship. Often in a game setting, the gods seem even more human than uh, the ancient Greeks, Romans, Egyptians, etc. imagine them to be. That can be good in a lot of ways. It helps you keep the lines between fantasy and reality solid and clearly drawn. On the other hand, if you're looking to insert some allegory into your games, uh, there is some value in acknowledging the sheer, like I said, awesome otherness and beyondness of God. Uh, I do have to throw the caveat in that uh, as a Christian, I feel like I can only really endorse that approach in a very allegorical and monotheistic context, but I suppose your mileage may vary. That would just be the limits of my comfort. Yeah. If you look at a lot of the, the gods that you see in fantasy settings, for example, well, a god of fire is just really hot fire. It's the hottest fire. A god of spiders is the biggest and most poisonous spider. A god of beasts is the beastliest beast. Yeah, it's the shaggiest, the most toothsome, whatever. Right. Those sorts of gods are inextricable from the natural world. Yeah, they're, they're really, um, <laughs> in a lot of ways, they're very much like Pokemon. You know, you've, you've got you've got the, you know, the the little thing that starts out as, you know, some cute little animal. And then at the end, you have like this big epic beast, but it's the same thing. They, they are avatars of that particular idea. Yeah, that's fine for a fantasy game. There's no risk that we're going to confuse those with God. Right. They kind of act as a marker saying, look, we are definitely not talking about God here. These are just high level creatures, honestly. Yeah. This is specifically not talking about anything dealing with real-world religion. This is just a convenient mechanic for a certain group of spellcasters to have, you know, a different type of spellcasting than another, and it also gives us some behind-the-scenes movers and shakers to help move the plot along. It also gives you something concrete to contrast against God. God is something that transcends 
the things of the earth and the things of the deeps and the things of the skies. Speaking of skies, if you look at cultures that worshipped astrological and astronomical features in the sky, those tended to have a very mechanistic or cyclical philosophy and belief system. And that may be something that informs your setting as you create a culture that believes like that. You know, if you have a very astronomically focused priesthood, well, maybe they're very much invested in the idea that certain things have to happen every year, and there are certain things we need to do. All things come back around again. Maybe they're very karmic. You know, maybe they believe in reincarnation. This particular star dies and comes back at regular times. So do we. It gives you a little something to tie in culturally and and make everything fit together. Uh, It's a bit of a caricature, sure, but there's room for that in certain settings. I don't know that it's necessarily a caricature, but it's definitely a trope. Sure. I think that's fine. Getting out of a symbolic context and into a more mechanical one, a lot of the time these idols and icons might serve as anchors for gods and their power in the world, um, and not allowing them in your lands or destroying them may diminish the gods' ability to influence the mortal world. A really interesting historical note about this, the Achaemenid Persian Empire took advantage of this idea in a political context. A lot of the time they would destroy, deface, or kidnap, you know, grab and haul away, the gods of rebellious cities. So they'd actually destroy or, you know, cart off the statue as a way of kind of exerting leverage over those societies that they had pulled into their empire through one way or another and were now giving them problems. Mm Mm-hmm. If you want to hear about this and so many other fascinating things about that particular period in uh, history, I feel like I have to recommend the Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast again, specifically the King of Kings series. Yep. Uh, it's it's three episodes long. I think the total running time is about nine hours or something like that. I think it's longer than that. I, he's put a lot of time. 10, 11, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, it, it feels like about two, but it's it's real long. Yeah, and what's cool is this series, it's three episodes, but it goes from the early Mesopotamian cultures to Alexander the Great. Yeah. It covers a huge swath of time and does so very well. Yeah, and a a large swath of geography. And one of the reasons why I'm recommending this in this episode is it covers at least some of the history of some of the other ancient societies that you hear about in the Bible. Yes. He covers the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. He covers the, the Israelites, Greeks. in fact. Yeah, the Israelites. It's it's very comprehensive. There was a lot of activity going on in that part of the world for several thousand years, and there still is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's better documented than the history in pretty much any other part of the world at that time which is sadly still not saying much, and he goes into that some too, but yeah, it's just, it's really good. It's definitely worth a listen. Another example that I want to bring up, and I have talked about David Eddings' work before. I I am a big David Eddings fan. I will make no excuses for it. Yeah, I like him too. He's He's a good writer. He's not the most versatile writer, but he is a good writer. Yeah, the thing he does, he does well. Yeah. But he played with this idea of idols in his Elenium series. The evil god of the setting and the story is actually trapped in a clay idol by his peers, and that limits his power because he can't leave unless he is worshipped. He is trapped there. All of these gods kind of feed off the worship of their followers, their their worshippers, give them strength. Common fantasy theme. Common fantasy theme. And by trapping him in this little clay idol in a cave, they couldn't kill him. Or didn't want to, but they trapped him in this in this cave, and the idea was, well, nobody's ever going to find him, and nobody's going to worship him. 
Well, some terrible little person does and starts creating this evil empire that is ruled through this human who found him. Uh, but really, it's this evil god in charge, yada, yada, yada. Uh, plot. Who cares? Point yeah. is, that god is still trapped in this little clay idol. And he's just not as supernatural as the others. There are things he can't do because he is a thing of the earth. That supernatural nature has been taken away or restricted. And it makes him vulnerable to a mere mortal with a hammer. And it's a really fun, interesting take. I, I really like that third book, like the the last bit of the third book, which is a very interesting take on some of those same fantasy tropes that we see elsewhere, but they're presented well. I am looking forward to rereading that series soon. I just picked those up at a couple of used bookstores while helping my wife at craft shows, and I finally got the the second volume, actually, was the one I was missing. So. So I had that, too. When I was trying to buy a copy, the second volume of the second of those series, the Tamuli. Tamuli? Yeah. I could not find. It was huh. very strange. <laughs> Volume two of David Edding's series are elusive books for some reason. Who knew? Uh, apparently so. Anyway. This is a little bit of a side note, and this is one of those things that I disclaim heavily before saying it, but uh, while I don't pretend to know the mind of God, there's the observation to be made that one of the possible reasons that it was easier for the Israelites to hang on to their faith when they were conquered repeatedly and stuff is that their religion was based on a covenant and a relationship rather than possession of a particular physical object. Even when the Ark of the Covenant was taken away from them, their faith persisted. It's a relationship between a God that is personal and universal at the same time, and he is not tied to his people through a thing. I think there's more truth in that than you are perhaps giving yourself credit for. We see that even today. We know that God is always with us. We do not have to have some object with us that that is God, that is our possession of God. No matter what we are doing, God is there. Yeah, Psalm 139. If I go up into the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that's a good place to wrap this up. Very theological, minimal amount of gaming content. We had a lot of gaming conversation at the front, I suppose, but that's okay. We did. Hey, you know, we're we're both a theology podcast and a gaming one, as it turns yes, out. We are. So I appreciate everybody taking the time to listen to us. We do greatly love hearing from all of you and knowing that you are there. We hope to keep this going and have fun. Uh, we are not too far away from episode 100. Woohoo! Yeah, it is just going to be a regular episode, folks. We're, we're not going to be one of those podcasts that skips over episode 100 and releases it six months later. We're just going to soldier right on and well, keep doing our thing. I'll, I'll be honest. I think doing a special, unique thing for episode 100 is kind of self-serving. It's like, I'm here to get content that you produce, not content of you talking about yourself. Yeah. Well, and frankly, it's also, I, I don't have any objection when podcasts do it, but it's very labor intensive. There's really just the two of us working on this thing, producing content, and... We have enough topics to discuss where I don't really want to break our momentum to just do a retrospective. Yeah, so, I've added like two topics to the list this week. Yeah. We still have to fit our um, Patreon selected topic in there. Yeah, and we've got some other guests that we want to have on and see why we're not doing this, folks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> lots to do. All right. Yep. Anyway, let's wrap this up. Thank you again. If you want to find more of our episodes, you can always find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org, whichever you find easier to remember. And of course, we're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Google+, you name it. 
So, from both of us here, have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. See you later, folks. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.